Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Hello and welcome into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, December the 18th. Thanks so much for tuning in. On today's program, I'm going to be taking a look back at the year in business for the city of Kamloops. I'll be joined by the president of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, Joshua Knack, to discuss the year that was and the year that will be here in the city. He'll be coming up around the 50-minute mark. The Liberal government wants streaming companies like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Amazon Prime to have more of a Canadian flavor to binge-washing sessions with a requirement for more Canadian content expected to be a part of legislation introduced next year. I'll be speaking with Canada's research chair in internet and e-commerce law about that at around the 35-minute mark today. And in about 10 minutes' time, I'll be speaking with the SD73 coordinator for health promoting in schools as the district is working on regulations and policies surrounding vaping. But to begin today's show, I am joined by the mayor of Kamloops, Ken Christian. Ken, how are you doing here today? Oh, I'm great. Uh, one week away from Christmas, so... Yeah, and now uh, you got all your council business out of the way here with a nice long meeting yesterday. How did that go? Well, we were in session from uh, pretty much 9 in the morning until just about 9 last night. So it was a long day, but, uh, of course, it was the last meeting of the year, the last meeting of the decade, actually. And uh, so there was lots of business to transact, and uh, we got uh, through our agendas, and uh, now we have a bit of a break. Uh, We don't uh, convene again until January the 14th and then weekly thereafter. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, looking at the last meeting of 2019, one of the big things on the agenda yesterday was uh, the Downtown Plan Council adopted that plan, which is, of course, going to shape the downtown core here in Kamloops for the next uh, 20 years. So when looking at this plan, I mean, it includes a lot of stuff, uh, you know, what's what's going to be taking place here in the city, Uh, you know, things like turning Seymour and Lansdowne into two-way streets, possibly, uh, the creation of that pedestrian plaza on 4th Avenue, uh, trying to remove truck traffic from the uh, downtown streets. I mean, just, is there anything in this plan specifically that maybe people aren't talking about that you are looking forward to as, as what could potentially be changing and shaping the downtown here in the future? Yeah, you know, you've kind of touched on some of the catalyst projects uh, there, uh, Jeff, but, uh, you know, kudos to uh, Jason Locke and his planning team. I think, uh, you know, that they put uh, a hurt effort into public consultation in and around this plan and uh, it really showed. I I think that we have a plan that uh, as many councillors reflected yesterday that uh, really uh, cuts a compromise between uh, you know uh, pave paradise and and put up a parking lot and uh, so I I think uh, there's a a plan there that really shows me a a downtown that I would like to use as a citizen and uh, there are some uh, big projects. There's going to be a requirement to have some uh, changes to our official community plan in terms of some of the zones that are in the uh, in the downtown plan and uh, that will come to council over the next year or so but uh, some of those catalyst projects and it's it's just like with the recreation master plan last week when we talked about it it, it shouldn't be interpreted by the public that all of a sudden these things are going to happen. Many of them uh, require a lot more thought, but they did really speak to a vision for downtown that has some real significant changes. And uh, the Columbia Street precinct, for instance, uh, you know, in conjunction with the uh, uh, government of British Columbia, what's that Mm going to look like? Uh, The uh, uh, Kamloops Square, uh, the Value Village property, what are those going to be look like is going to be largely at the hands of the owners and the developers. Uh, 
the pedestrian uh, mall, a great idea, more people space in downtown, uh, but we're going to have to talk to the TAC, the traffic uh, uh, advisory group about that and, and just make sure that that's going to work before we implement it. And then, of course, the uh, the big uh, jewel, uh, the Center for the Arts, that's subject to a referendum, so we have to wait for that, of course. And, and so there are many uh, great ideas in there, but uh, they're going to take some process before they're enacted. Yeah, and, and we'll, we'll get to the Performing Arts Center here in just a, a quick second, but I did want to ask, because I, I asked this of uh, the engineering director last week, uh, Matkowski, Mr. Matt, Mr. Matkowski, about this, and just sort of talking about, because uh, last week was the uh, transportation choices strategy for downtown that uh, was eventually referred back to administration for more work to be done on that. But just when we're looking at something like a downtown plan, and especially when with a number of the initiatives here talking about, you know, active transportation and walkability seem to be, uh, you know, parts of it, not necessarily the, the direct influence of it, but, you know, they, they connect. So uh, when we're looking at a downtown plan and a transportation plan and even a parking strategy, right, that is also in the works, I mean, how difficult is it sometimes to keep all these things in check to make sure that they're all coordinating properly? Well, you know, that came up yesterday in the in the discussion from some councillors that, you know, these pieces all seem a bit disparate, but in fact, they all fit together. Certainly parking is an issue that transcends a lot of these planning uh, initiatives, uh, but certainly the big one is transportation. And, and you know, uh, if you look at the European model most cities uh, you know park the cars at the outskirts and they walk in the downtown and it creates community it creates connectedness between citizens it just gives you a good feeling about being downtown uh, whereas the North American model is kind of uh, you know uh, based upon uh, getting the vehicle into the downtown core as close as you can and then parking it in lar large edifices so mm -hmm. you know we have uh, to look at that and 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 see how much uh, we want to change and and I think that we need to do that incrementally but if we create places downtown where people want to be uh, that will uh, just uh, add to the livability and it will keep our streets alive uh, on, a, on a longer basis on, on more days of the week and uh, so there'll be people there from 6 a.m. until midnight kind of thing like the uh, Robson Street kind of feel and that uh, that will over time really create opportunities for business in our downtown town core and it will create opportunities for more recreation and cultural activities. Yeah, a long way to go for a lot of this stuff to be implemented, but I think it's a really exciting plan here moving forward and, and just, you know, making sure all these plans fit together is definitely something that will be, uh, or I, I am interested to see how it kind of works and, and fits together. Um, here with Kamloops Mayor Ken Christian, one thing that also came up at Council yesterday was the, uh, the, the referendum, like you had mentioned, for the Performing Arts Centre. That's going to be happening April 4th, but you've started the process to kind of go about seeing uh, how to go get that $45 million loan. So can you just tell me a little bit about what was discussed yesterday and how this sort of fits in the process towards uh, that April 4th vote? Yeah, yesterday we gave the first three readings to a uh, loan authorization bylaw. That's part of the process uh, taking us uh, towards a referendum. Uh, that will be held in abeyance until the result of the April 4th refer referendum. And uh, then uh, if there is assent from the electors, then we would act upon that and uh, reach out to uh, the uh, Municipal Finance Authority for uh, that kind of a loan uh, as and when construction warranted us having the money in hand. So, you know, that's uh, it's part of a process and, and uh, yesterday was another milestone in that and uh, this council has been uh, to this point unanimous in, in terms of its support of this project and uh, that uh, will continue on now to the Inspector of Municipalities. He'll approve the referendum question and then we'll be able to start the 
the mechanics of running a, essentially another civic election. Right on, and uh, yeah, we'll definitely look forward to that. That'll something we'll continue to, to monitor as we get closer to that April 4th vote. I can't anticipate you'd see much of a, a difference in the question that was presented earlier here, but uh, I guess there is that possibility because it does have to be approved. Yeah, the the question I think is pretty much mapped out now, yeah. but uh, you know we do have to go through those steps of getting the approval of the inspector, and there's some timelines around that that we have to adhere to. Uh, I also wanted to ask, there was a Civic Operations Committee meeting that was held on Monday. One of the things that was discussed on there was just uh, snow and ice removal. Uh, the report mentioned in fall last year, Council approved additional snow and ice control equipment, uh, as well as some staff as well. So I just, I'm just i curious to get your initial thoughts just on the, the state of snow and ice removal in Kamloops. I understand there has been some budgetary issues with it in the past, but just sort of what is your, your feeling about the, the, the department here moving forward? Well, I, I think the department is incredibly well-managed and, and and very well staffed, uh, very professional operators, and uh, I think that they, uh, you know, protect Kamloops citizens on a 24-7 basis. Yesterday when I was uh, wishing well to the administrative staff and wished them some time off, I recognized the fact that civic operations are going to be making sure that, you know, our water's running and our streets are safe on, on Christmas Day and, and beyond. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's always uh, very risky for a mayor to say that we're under budget with snow removal uh, and then have five or ten days left in the year and all of a sudden we get a big dump of snow. But uh, so far, touch wood, we have, uh, you know, been able to uh, get by with the uh, snow events that we've had fairly well, but we do have additional capacity now. Uh, that's based upon a few bad years where we had lots of complaints in and around our ability to keep the streets safe, and so we have tooled up in terms of our civic operations, and uh, I think that, uh, you know, going forward we'll be in a good position, and, and uh, you need to recognize, too, that these people don't sit around waiting for it to snow. There are a whole bunch of other tasks that are going on, uh, but they are ready to uh, jump into action when we do have significant snowfalls in the city, and uh, uh, to date we've been lucky. Uh, there's probably no data, but just anecdotally, I mean, from, from 2018, have you, do you, are you thinking that, uh, you know, the, the process for snow removal has gone better? Have you heard less from the public, I guess, when I'm, uh, around concerns? You know, it's funny. Uh, you hear from uh, people. The, the minute it starts snowing, you're going to hear from people. And uh, and then uh, just this week, I've had two complaints of uh, people that were woken up by snow plows and they didn't think there was warranted uh, enough snow to be out there. So, uh, you know, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't <laughs> yeah, sometimes in this business. But, uh, you know, quite frankly, I, I think that our uh, operation is very professionally managed and uh, we have the sensors in place to uh, kind of anticipate when we need to be ready to roll and uh, we have a number of tools in our arsenals, uh, everything from mag sulfate through to, uh, you know, belly dump uh, plows and, and then eventually if we need to, snow removal, uh, you know, th from the windrow. So, you know, we're, we have a, a very complex city in terms of the road network and a lot of different elevations uh, in Kamloops so you can have different conditions at the top of Barnhart Vale than you might have in Rayleigh. So, you know, we need to be conscious of that and uh, put uh, most of our efforts where they're needed the most at the right time. Well, Mr. Mayor, I think that's pretty much it. I know it's going to be a month probably before we talk again, or potentially anyway, a month before council meets again. Anything else that you want people to know before I let you go here? Well, on behalf of myself and council, I want to wish you and the staff here at uh, NL Broadcasting the best for 2020 and uh, keep up the good work.
Thanks so much, and, and we wish the same for you. That was Kamloops Mayor uh, Ken Christian. Coming up after the break, we'll be talking more about what the school district is doing to combat youth vaping as well as uh, provide more mental health support. So we'll be uh, talking about that after this. Digging deeper into the day's top stories, you're listening to Jeff Andreas on 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Welcome back into the Jeff Andrea Show here on Wednesday, December the 18th. Thanks so much for tuning in. School District 73 is listening to concerns expressed by students, whether it be about drug use issues or vaping or mental health supports. Students in the district are wanting schools and effective counseling in those areas. I'm joined now by the SD73 Coordinator for Health Promoting in Schools, Sher Sherry Stade. Sherry, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Probably turn your mic on. That might help. I turned it on for you. Okay. Don't worry. You're good now. Okay. Good morning. <laughs> um, so l let's start by taking a, a little bit of a look back to that uh, panelist session that took place last week. There were five uh, panelists that uh, presented to some school students here in the district, mm -hmm. and you took some questions and some feedback about some things that were going on. I guess, can you just sort of give me a, a quick rundown of what that conversation was? What were some of the major concerns that students were presenting to you? The concerns that some students were presenting is... Um, um, having uh, an opportunity to gain knowledge about mental health and mental health illnesses, um, wondering what the supports are in the school system, uh, where can they seek help, um, and in my response to those questions, perhaps some of those students, because they're senior students in grade 11 and 12, aren't aware of the interventions that we have in our school system. One of them is a teen mental health curriculum on mental health literacy at the grade 9 level which is facilitated in the physical and health education classes. So teachers were trained in that area last year and it's district-wide now for about six to eight hours of instruction. And we are piloting a mental health literacy curriculum at the grade seven level, which is about um, four hours of instruction, talking about what mental health is, what are signs and symptoms, and how to develop coping skills. And, and how important is it to get that feedback from students on these issues? I mean, I guess these are the things that affect them, and, mm -hmm. and how frequently are, are you guys as a school board, uh, you know, taking in some of that information to try to improve the, the, the supports that are available? I think it's really important to scan our students about what is important to them, what their needs are, to inform us how to move forward. There have been, uh, there's been an adolescent youth health survey that was done in 2018 in previous years, and the students that are taking these surveys are telling us they want to understand more about mental health, they want um, ways of seeking help so that they can cope in their daily lives. And as educators, um, statistically, they say one in five people will develop a mental health issue. So the onset of mental health illnesses is during adolescence to 25 years of age. So these are the students that are in our classrooms. We as people that have daily interactions with students need to learn about mental health literacy. So, I mean, we, I've talked about this with, with other officials in the past and, mm -hmm. you know, how mental health is obviously something that is on everyone's radar and, and wanting to make sure yeah. that, you know, the supports are available, particularly for those who are, you know, developing brains and they're trying to learn. It's important that they are well taken care of in order to be able to, to achieve success. Um, but it sounds like there were a number of concerns from students about, I guess, their ability to access some of these services. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess what is the school board doing to make sure that, you know, students are aware of how to go about getting help mm -hmm. so in our education in the younger grades we address that uh, the first step would in our education is reducing the stigma towards mental illness this is the greatest barrier in seeking help 
Uh, in some cases, a person that is having a struggle, even if there are supports around them, they may not see them. So what does that look like? What are the signs and symptoms so that teachers, students, and everyone uh, know what they are so that maybe they can seek help. Some of the suggestions from the older students in that um, session were maybe we could have signage to show what is a, a number that we can call. So really with our um, mental health literacy which is designed for educators to facilitate it so that everyone has a deeper understanding of what mental health is and maybe we can bring awareness to many students at the same time of where you can go to get help. And our first step is as a teacher, um, um, safe adult um, referring to a counselor and that is probably the uh, area where um, they can connect them to the community for further help if it's required or help students with coping mechanisms. And uh, I understand yesterday as well you had a chance to uh, get on the phone with some people from Regional Interior Health to talk about how they are going to help support uh, your ability to, to be able to, you know, to have these services available. Can you just tell me a little bit about that discussion and sort of what they're willing to do now to, to help you know, improve the situation moving forward and make sure more services are available or, or easy to access? The um conference call that I had with the health authority was more to do with vaping support. Okay. Uh, yeah, but okay, even from a vaping standpoint, I guess, yeah. what, what's being done to make sure that, or, or I guess, what what changes or what, what was the conversation? Tell me a little bit about the mood of the conversation yesterday. Okay. They know that we are uh, working on a huge intervention in School District 73, the council mm -hmm. region. We are um, addressing a knowledge gap that many adults have with regard to their understanding of vaping, uh, what is vaping, what is an e-juice, what happens to your body. So um, we are starting at the grade six, seven level. We've already facilitated to 1,600 students. Um, so Interior Health is interested in what we're doing. They want to know how can they support us. What the students are telling us is um, they want to know the science, the factual information about what happens to your body when you do vape and they want to know what the supports are out there so that they could quit. Mm -hmm. Well, that's definitely a, a lot to unpack and uh, something that you know the school board has been working very hard on for a while and it's going to continue to work on and, and you know, we're seeing the province starting to take some steps as well mm -hmm. to help in that support. So, unfortunately, we are out of time, but thanks so much for coming in today, Sherry. I really appreciate it and, uh, yeah, lots, lots to learn here as we progress about a number of important issues here moving forward. So, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was uh, Sherry Stade, the uh, health promoting in schools here at for SD73. Coming up after the break, more Canadian content coming to your streaming service well, that might be the case, and I'll be talking more about that after the break. The voice of your community, Radio NL 610 AM News Talk and RadioNL.com. Here's Jeff Andreas. Hello and welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, December 18th. The Liberal government wants streaming companies to be more Canadian. It is looking to introduce legislation next year that would include a requirement for more Canadian content. The Federal Heritage Minister has been directed to bring new rules to streaming companies that will force them to put Canadian content up front. To talk more about this, I am joined on the line now by Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and University of Ottawa Faculty of Law Professor Michael Guy. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me. So, I mean, currently looking, just sort of comparing, um, you know, what's on streaming services to what's on TV. I mean, uh, about 50% of programming uh, Canadian broadcasters have to air between 6 p.m. and midnight must be Canadian. But there's no specific rules for streaming services. So uh, just to start with, I guess, is it important, do you believe, to bring these uh, kind of streaming services in line with what other broadcasters have to do in Canada? Because it seems kind of a little bit unfair, I guess, right now that, uh, you know, on television we're, we're... People or programmers are forced to put a whole bunch of Canadian content up front, but streaming services aren't subject to those same rules. Well, I mean, I think to be candid, it's an apples to oranges comparison. There really is no comparison between broadcasters and streaming services for any number of reasons. I mean, even during the time period that you just articulated, I mean, most people who still watch television will know that what you're actually referring to is local news, uh, which is how they meet that standard, not uh, actual Canadian programming. And the extent to which it is original Canadian programming, it's frequently buried on Friday and Saturday nights, which are the lowest nights for actually watching these kinds of programs. The further, I think it's worth noting, broadcasters have all sorts of regulatory advantages that Netflix doesn't have. I mean, if you have a cable or satellite service, you have no choice but to pay for CTV, for global, and for a range of other providers that are so-called must-carry. For Netflix and its 6.5 million subscribers, every single one of them can walk away any month they like, and they only to continue to stay and only continue to pay if there's content that they want to see. And it's worth noting that much of that content or that there is real Canadian content for those that want to seek it out. So, I mean, it sounds like this would be something that would be very, very difficult really to regulate at all. I mean, uh, you know, strike you had mentioned streaming services, um, you know, it's, it's all uh, uh, subscription based and you can cancel any time and uh, you're not necessarily going to be subjected to that Canadian content, even if it is kind of pushed into you, you don't have to uh, to view it in the same light and the same way. I guess just, just how difficult do you think it would be to even enforce a, a law that would force uh, streaming services to put more Canadian content up front? Is, how, how would you even go about doing that? Right. Well, I think the devil's in the details, to be sure. I mean, this, a lot of this discussion started with concerns that companies like Netflix weren't, would, the belief was they wouldn't invest in creating Canadian content or film and television production in Canada. The reality is actually that that hasn't proven to be the case. Uh, we now know that over the last couple of years, Netflix has spent about a third of their Canadian revenues on film and television production in Canada. We're one of the top three places where they spend money. And that, that's more than $500 million worth of expenditures just in the last couple of years. So if the concern is that this is going to impact film and TV production in Canada, that actually hasn't proven to be the case. If the concern is that we want to ensure that there's the availability of CanCon on these services, I do think there's a real challenge. I mean, we've seen some suggest that Netflix should have as much as as, as much as 30% of their content be Canadian. Now, they're using, I think, a poor comparison with some Europe-wide regulations. But if the government were to say, yeah, that's we'd like to see that, Netflix has about 6,000 unique titles in its Canadian library. So you're talking either about having them remove a couple thousand and substituting it with about 2,000 new Canadian titles or adding about 3,000 new Canadian titles if they don't want to remove stuff. Either way, the notion that they could find two to 3,000 unique Canadian titles that are currently unlicensed and available and that people actually want to watch strikes me as highly unlikely. I also think maybe an important question 
here to, to understand, I guess, the gravity of the situation is how is Canadian content actually defined right now? I mean, is it about where the show is filmed? Is it about the actors that are in them? I mean, what, what does Canadian content actually mean when we're talking about uh, what's available on streaming services or even on TV at the, for that matter? Right, so that's a fantastic question. I actually think that, that that goes to the heart of where some of the problems really lie. So we've currently got a system that is basically checking several boxes, and as long as you can tick enough of the boxes, you get defined as Canadian. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. For one thing, it often doesn't mean that it's Canadian at all. Oftentimes, you can tick the boxes and have a generic cop show or courtroom drama or a show that's actually designed to look like Portland, Oregon or New York City, and it has really nothing to do with Canada at all, yet it meets the criteria. The other real issue with that is that you've got to be, you've got to have a Canadian producer in order to meet the criteria at all. And so when it comes to Netflix actually creating Canadian content, where it's the only producer, it might sure feel like Canadian content, but it actually does not qualify formally as CanCon. So if you think of the reboots that Netflix has done around things like Trailer Park, Trailer Park Boys uh, or Degrassi, those actually are not Canadian for the purposes of being defined as Canadian content because if Netflix is the sole producer, our rules say it can't be. In fact, Netflix is even funding a film in Quebec right now. Quebec director, Quebec and Canadian-based actors. I mean, it's, it is truly a Canadian-based production, and yet it doesn't qualify. Why? Because Netflix is the producer, and if you're not a Canadian producer, you don't get to qualify. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting web, I guess, to, to kind of untangle. Um, uh, one thing also, uh, you had mentioned in, in something I was reading that uh, whether streaming giants actually push back against the new regulations will depend on the details, and you had mentioned that a little bit in your previous responses as well. I guess, what, what do you think would be required for them not to push back? I mean, given what you have said and just sort of the difficulty around supplying Canadian content and, and what that actually is defined as, uh, it sounds like it might be very difficult for these companies to actually uh, follow in line with what potential new rules might be unveiled. So, I mean, do you foresee any way that these companies wouldn't be pushing back on any kind of legislation that would be introduced? Well, I think their pushback, at least for now, will be to say that the system is working. Why do you want to jump in with heavy-handed regulation? And so the Canadian government reached agreement with Netflix a couple of years ago in which it said that it would invest up to $500 million or at least $500 million over the next five years on film and TV production in Canada. They actually did that in two years. And so if the goal is to ensure that there's film and TV production, Netflix and the other streaming services have proven to be a boon for Canada. They're investing massive amounts in film and TV production in Canada without regulation. I mean, that's part of the irony is that the Canadian industry has often felt that the only way people would invest in film and TV production in Canada is if they were required to do so by regulation. Netflix actually demonstrate that that's not true, that there's talent here and that they're willing to invest without being required to do so from a legal perspective. If the concern is a cultural one, how do Canadians find CanCon and is there enough CanCon on these services? I mean, I think 
Netflix basic response would be we're in the business as we were talking about earlier of satisfying our customers and if we don't they're going to go elsewhere and stop paying the subscription and if what they are looking for is CanCon then we better provide it otherwise we're going to lose them as a subscriber. In other words the market is really working here and the approach the government has taken up until now which is one to try to encourage investment in Canada and active participation in Canada is actually working. Interesting. Uh, do you think, uh, just out of curiosity, I mean, when we're talking about uh, Canadian content, a lot of what, uh, you know, this conversation has been surrounded on, I guess, is the percentage of content that's available and how much of that is actually defined as being Canadian. Uh, do you think it's possible that even when we're looking at proposed legislation that might come to, to come in line here, um, that it could just be a matter of putting that Canadian content up on those uh, those screens that would basically, you know, you, you see those first when you, when you log into your Netflix account or your Amazon Prime account or whatever the case may be, that... The first thing that pops up is a Canadian show as opposed to something else. Even could, could something as small as that be part of this? Well, I think, I think there's been talk about that. They often refer to it as discoverability and the idea that the government would mandate that these services make Canadian content more discoverable. I have to admit I struggle a bit with that, the idea that a bureaucrat in Ottawa knows better than Netflix what its 6.5 million subscribers want to see through its data collection and algorithms frankly strikes me as absurd. I mean, Netflix, as I say, will show as part of it through its algorithm Canadian content if the customer shows that that's actually what they want to see. And for those that want to seek it out, this is not a challenge. I'd encourage any of your listeners to simply go to their Netflix account and run a search for Canada. There are all series, there are all sorts of specific categories that focus on Canadian actors, Canadian TV shows, Canadian films. Netflix is not hiding any of this. This is all quite easy to find. The issue really is that we're disguising, I think, claims around hard to, that, that the content is hard to find as opposed to the question of whether or not Canadians, when con- presented the choice of a pretty wide range of global content like you find on these services, whether or not it's the Canadian content that Canadians most want to see. Sometimes it surely is, uh, but not all the time. Uh, a lot of interesting stuff here, Michael. I really appreciate you taking the time. I just wanted to ask you one more question about uh, sort of a little bit of a shift before I let you go, because from what I understand, another part of this possible legislation that could come forward would include looking at uh, online harms such as uh, radicalization, incitement to violence, exploitation of children, um, you know, these things as it pertains to, to social media, and it sounds like they're going to be trying to weed out a lot more of this this speech that I'm talking about here. Um, it just sounds like that some that would be very, very difficult to police, and I'm just also wondering why that kind of legislation isn't already in place, but uh, I just wanted to get your quick thoughts on on that sort of piece of this. So when it comes to that social media aspect and the ability to to weed out some of this hate speech that's being talked about, I mean, is that even possible? And um, why do you think something like this hasn't already been done? Sure. Well, I mean, I think I think we are likely to see more regulations of uh, social media speech or speech on social media companies and requiring them to do more, or at least that will be the effort to try to move in that direction. You know, I think we, we do have hate speech laws already in place, and they can be enforced. The question uh, as to what more social media companies can do, yeah. I think, is a fair one, and I think a lot of people are, are, are really having that conversation. One of the challenges, I think, though, that we're likely to face is that we're bored some of these proposals from Europe where we have seen more of a push towards regulating the large social media companies, those countries don't have the Charter, and rights, of, charter of rights and Freedoms like we do in Canada. And so it's not so simple to, to just say, well, we're now going to regulate this kind of speech. The Charter makes it clear that if it is legal speech, even if it's harmful, 
the notion that we can take some strong steps to uh, regulate that speech, I think, represents a real challenge. That's distinct from what would be seen as unlawful or illegal speech, where it's quite clear that the law applies and the ability to apply that law should apply online just as it does offline. Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time. There's a lot of interesting stuff there, and uh, I could probably talk about this for a lot longer. But unfortunately, uh, for me, anyway, we're out of time. So thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Right on. That was Michael Geis, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and University of Ottawa Faculty of Law Professor. Coming up after the break, Kamloops Chamber President Joshua Knack will join me in studio, so stick around for that. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Jeff Andreas on RadioNL.com. Welcome back to the Jeff Andreas Show here on Wednesday, December 18th. Let's take a quick look here at what was going on in Kamloops when it comes to the business community. And I'm joined in studio now by the president of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, Joshua Knack. Joshua, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. You should probably turn your mic on. It's the second time I've done that to a guest today. Um, so uh, let's just take a quick look back at, at some of what happened in 2019. Uh, one of the highlights that you had mentioned was the implementation of a mobile business license, which sounded uh, like a pretty big deal, I guess, for a lot of businesses here in town. So can you just sort of talk about what that is and, and what its significance is? Sure. So, I mean, really, it's the culmination of 10 years of, uh, of work by the Kamloops Chamber and, and became the BC Chamber. And it affects businesses that, uh, that do work in Kamloops, but also in sort of the, the greater area. So so, you know, Chase, uh, Merritt, uh, Barrier, some of those other, other municipalities. And so for those businesses, up till this point, they, they would have needed to get a business license in each of those places. So take a New Tech Fire and Safety, for instance. I think Bob Dino said they do work in, in 10 or 12 of those, and that meant a business license in each one. Um, now, what, what's happened, and really what's happened throughout BC, is, is there's areas that have, that have got together and said, okay, you can get a, a business license in one of the municipalities that then um, affects, uh, or that then is is valid in all of those others as well. So it really simplifies businesses, streamline things, and then also make sure for municipalities that that uh, that anybody doing business in that area is licensed. Because quite frankly, I think there were a lot of businesses that maybe didn't even realize that they needed to have one if they went to uh, you know to like a barrier, for instance. Yeah, and I think that was something that was discussed here earlier in the fall at, by Kamloops City Council anyway, and then it's sort of been kind of making its ways around uh, the TNRD. Um, so I, have you heard a lot from from business owners who have been pretty happy with with the process so far? I mean, it's still pretty fresh, right? So It's fresh here, but it's something that had already been implemented throughout most of the province. So it, it originated here out of Kamloops. It was a, an idea that came from our business community um, and then caught on throughout the province. And, and it was good in a way because we were able to just sort of adopt what, what many others are doing. But yeah, great change for efficiency and making, making it easier to do business here. Does that have a significant impact on administrative costs that you don't have to, you know, apply for a business license in 12 different places? Yeah, administrative costs, administrative time, and, uh, and the municipalities from my understanding end up sharing around the revenue of those the sort of the uh, it's a different type of business license right there's a, a revenue sharing that happens there so it makes sense for everybody uh, another thing that was on I know it was on the council agenda I believe it was last week now I'm starting to get my weeks a little bit mixed up here but the uh, revitalization tax exemption it did not pass uh, as it currently sat but it will be coming back to council in the new year um, you, you had mentioned that this is a big deal when you think about uh, what what 
it could do to encourage uh, commercial uh, businesses to, to start operating here in Kamloops. Um, I'm probably a little bit disappointed that it didn't pass as it was here earlier this month, but uh, it doesn't sound like it's dead in the water by any means. It's just going to be tweaked and rejigged and then come back. So um, I guess just, just what are you looking forward to about uh, how this could potentially impact business to growth here in, in 2020? Well, I mean, I think the fact that this is even being revisited is is very positive because I know there's a lot of commercial, there are a lot of commercial developments that are under consideration right now, particularly in these areas. Areas. And that's something that I've been here for 10 years. It was 10 years uh, last month. And that's something that's sort of the first time that I've heard that. So the fact that there are developers and builders that are looking, the fact that there are businesses that are looking for that kind of space is great. But yes, it do, we do need a little something to spur it on. We, we, need, we need something to just sort of get some of these projects across the finish line. And, and I think that, that it, this is a very important, uh, an important thing to, to get past. And, uh, and we're looking forward to, to seeing, it, seeing it get across the finish line. Uh, anything else that's you know kind of significant here for the for the chamber looking ahead to 2020 at this point in time? Any big initiatives that uh, you're looking at here as we we, uh, we kind of approach the new year? Yeah, I mean the year started for us talking about a significant significant increases in taxes on on business, which then really become taxes on the greater economy, and uh, the employer health tax is one that uh, that is now kicked in where where there's double taxation happening for this year, where people are paying the MSP premiums, employers are paying it to some extent, and uh, and also the employer health tax and we're going to continue to be to be watching that. We've looked at the federal government now. I think they said it was a $26 billion deficit that's coming up and and that's not that's not sustainable. Um, and so that's either going to result in in you know in cutting services if there's no improved efficiencies or a stronger economy really, but it'll also it, it'll result in higher taxes and uh, and we we know that uh, you know a lot of times the talk is well let's let's have the, let's shift it to the business community, but the reality is we all pay that. And uh, and I am self-employed now. I have my own business, but I have haven't always been, and yet I, I know how that works. The taxes, uh, the taxes, and the costs always shift down, and and we want to make sure that uh, that 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 livability is is high in Canada. That it's that it's you know that it's affordable, and I think we need responsible government at all levels to make sure that that happens. Yeah, so that is a significant change. Looking at 2020, the the fact that the businesses won't have to pay both the MSP and the employee health tax, but I guess that's more of a benefit for the regular average Joe as opposed to the business owner. So, uh, do do you know as a business community sort of how this is going to look next year or is it still sort of a wait and see given that you know there is still a lot of changes coming in in the form of how healthcare is being taxed in BC I mean, I think I, I think over the last six months there's been more clarity. There has been some to credit them. The provincial government has made even some adjustments to it, but uh, but there's still the thresholds, and it's interesting because if you're a business and your your payroll is right under uh, the threshold, and you know by hiring another employee it now pushes you into a higher bracket, you you may think twice about doing that, and that that doesn't seem to be what we want to be rewarding or uh, you know for for business. We we want to see that economy grow. Mm-hmm. So it it will be interesting to see is to see certainly how it how it plays out, and I think. That's just an example of one thing. Um, we're seeing rising taxes, rising costs on on all fronts, and uh, and that's going to be a, certainly a challenge to uh, to overcome in 2020. Right on, Josh. Well, uh, it's always a pleasure to have you in here. Anything else you want to throw on the table before I let you go? Just Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, and thanks for having me on all the time. Right on. We'll be doing it again soon. I'm I'm almost 100% certain of it. So Perfect. thanks so much for doing this. All right, Appreciate thanks. it, Josh. That was the president of the Kamloops Chamber of Commerce, Josh Winnack. Uh, so that about wraps things up for me here today. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me. And of course, a big thank you to all of you for listening. And remember, whether you join me here for a short while or a long while, just know I enjoyed our time while it lasted. I'll be back here tomorrow morning at 9. Uh-huh.